From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Teaching on college campuses in the pandemic is a learning experience itself. And it's not just what happens in classrooms, but navigating campus life safely. For example, the ticket to admission might be as a a negative COVID test within the last 72 hours. So we can figure this out, but we need to provide experiences that preclude the you know, the COVID fatigue where you're just saying, you know, I'm just tired of wearing this mask and I'm going to go out and party and hope I don't get sick. What colleges have learned from the fall as they head into the spring. Then we hear from some K-12 teachers as they face a possible return to the classroom. Later, there's a new show. You don't watch it on a screen. It takes place in the night sky. An astronomer breaks down the science of the current meteor shower at another event called the Great Conjunction. During a time when so many of us have been physically distanced from friends, neighbors, and colleagues, your generous support has helped Colorado Public Radio bridge the gaps, bringing our community together through the stories that connect us all. Voluntary support is the lifeblood of the content and coverage we all rely on. Thank you for being our partner in making this kind of radio happen for the Colorado community each and every day. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Healthcare workers today will be the first Coloradans to get the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine. And from here, a process unfurls that lasts through at least the summer. That's when the general public will be inoculated. So for a while, pandemic life will largely remain unchanged for many. Take, for instance, college life. Students at CU Boulder, the state's largest university, learned their campus will remain closed for at least the first month of the new semester. And that decision comes after a bumpy fall term for schools all over. To talk through the lessons learned, CPR's Paolo Chalceda is with us. Hi, Paolo. Hey. Walk us through CU's decision to delay the reopening of its campus. Yeah, so last week, CU leaders announced at least the first month of the new semester will be held entirely remote. They say with the pandemic as dire as it is now, they can't open campus safely until cases decrease. This applies to all walks of campus life. That means residence halls are closed, so people who live in a dorm can't move in until in-person classes resume. They're targeting the middle of February to reopen, but that may may change depending on what case numbers and hospitalizations look like. Right. We have to think of CU Boulder as part of a larger community, as part of the Boulder and Boulder County community. So this is not just about student health. What about other colleges and universities? Are they taking CU's lead and staying remote? Last time I checked, no. It looks like CU Boulder is the only campus committing to this. But that doesn't mean it won't happen. Uh, Local health authorities may order campuses to close if cases get especially bad. And with even more holiday travel coming up, that's a huge possibility. Right. Obviously, we know a lot more about the virus and its spread than we did in August. What lessons did universities learn over these past couple of months that they're carrying into the new year? First off, social distancing and mask wearing works. Uh, There was a lot of spread among college-age students over the past semester, but almost all of it occurred in off-campus social environments. That means parties or, uh, you know, dorm gatherings uh, or off-campus dorm gatherings. On-campus classes were socially distanced and at reduced capacity. And a lot of educators improvised and taught classes outdoors or under tents. 
Another huge area of success was wastewater testing. Most of the colleges I've been monitoring have been testing the sewage coming from residence halls to identify COVID infection in pre-symptomatic people. Because you can detect that. Say more about wastewater testing and I guess testing in general. Yeah, wastewater testing is super interesting and a really important tool against COVID. Over the course of the fall semester, both CU Boulder and Colorado State University uncovered coronavirus infections in dorms through wastewater tests. But wastewater tests aren't a silver bullet. Like most COVID mitigation tactics, it has to be paired with rigorous testing, mask wearing, and social distancing to bring the risk down to as low as possible. Most colleges implemented a frequent rapid result testing program for their on-campus students, and this semester, a lot of them are hoping to expand those programs for those living off-campus as well. You mentioned teaching classes outside as a way to prevent spread of the virus, but I imagine, Paulo, as the weather continues to get colder, I mean, classes are going to have to adapt. How so? Yeah, long story short, uh, they're going to have to cope with whatever they have. Uh, for many professors, it all depends on luck. Here's uh, here's Stacy Chamberlain, a professor in Regis University's chemistry department. She's taught a lot of her classes outdoors. Luckily, we have a very ancient building that overheats itself. So <laughs> we have the windows often open in the winter. But the I think the other important part is uh, a lot of times I move like the biochemistry course, if I feel like we're in the wrong kind of space, I move us into the lab because in the lab we have negative air pressure. So I have some advantages that other professors do not. Fascinating. I understand what that's like. I have radiant heat in my house and it gets so warm I have to open the windows, which of course means (laughs) air circulation in the era of COVID. In January, students will presumably return to dorms. What did colleges learn from the summer move-in? Honestly, summer move-in went pretty smoothly by most standards. Uh, From what I'm hearing, colleges will double down on their strategies from last August. Here's Colorado College Chief Technology Officer Brian Young on how the Colorado Springs campus will handle move-in. We will have staggered uh, times and days that families and students will be coming back to campus. They'll be tested upon arrival. They will start their quarantine process. They'll then be tested on the last day or two of quarantine to verify negative. Paolo, going to college during a global pandemic has to be tough. Are are university leaders making any changes to support students during a difficult time like this? Uh, Both yes and no. Uh, Next semester, a a couple universities like CU Boulder are canceling spring break to prevent unnecessary travel. They're instead canceling classes on some Wednesdays to make up for that loss. But university leaders understand that students do need a break. After all, college is an important time for young adults to develop and socialize. I spoke with CU Boulder's provost, Russell Moore, about their how they're going to support the mental health needs of students. They're not only investing in more counseling and services, but they're exploring ways for on-campus residents to socialize safely. One idea that we haven't uh, codified, but that we're bringing forward and certainly considering is having larger social gatherings on campus for our on-campus students because they're the ones who are actually desiring these kinds of experiences. And, for example, the ticket to admission might be as a a negative COVID test within the last 72 hours. So we can figure this out, uh, but we need to provide experiences that that, that preclude the, you know, the COVID fatigue where you just say, you know, I'm just tired of wearing this mask and I'm going to go out and party and hope I don't get sick. 
Fascinating how things are adapting. I mean, that idea of not having a spring break, but a bunch of Wednesdays off. Meanwhile, many students and parents want cheaper tuition, arguing that online classes just aren't worth paying full freight. Is that on the horizon? The short answer is no. That doesn't seem realistic for colleges anywhere. The pandemic has devastated the budget of universities due to the decline in enrollment and massive investment into remote learning infrastructure. Hmm. Yes, students are feeling a financial burden, but so are faculty and staff. Hundreds of people employed by universities in Colorado are already taking pay cuts and furloughs. Fact of the matter is, tuition largely pays salaries. If there's a cut, the quality of education would actually lower because there wouldn't be any as many educators per student. Paolo, thanks so much for this reporting. No worries, Ryan. Paolo Chalceda tracking how the pandemic affects Colorado's colleges and universities. And a quick program note, Wednesday is our vaccine special. You can tune in as we answer the flood of questions that Coloradans have been sending about the rollout of the vaccine here. Again, that's Wednesday. We will also take your questions in real time on Twitter. Students of all ages are in remote learning. As districts decide whether to return to the classroom, reporter Vignesh Ramachandran spoke with teachers around the state to hear what they think. We have some more classic ones, like Fahrenheit 451 is an option. The City of Ember, Cinder, The House of the Scorpion, The Giver, and The Last Wild. Ali Solom's 8th grade language arts class in Longmont is currently studying dystopian literature. Dystopia is a fitting theme for this year. The coronavirus has kept teachers apart from their students and instructing through the computer. I know that my district has really just been wanting to get kids into classrooms, so that is something that I support. But we were really hoping for a change back to remote, just because it was so challenging to get coverage for classes when people were quarantined. It's the conundrum teachers have been facing all around the state. Everyone prefers in-person learning, but remote learning is more stable, and teachers say switching back and forth is hard. Mark Castleman, a veteran teacher at Boulder High, got the coronavirus himself in March. And it's not an experience I'd recommend to anybody. The physics and astronomy teacher said his school tried a hybrid model, and it only lasted six days. And the problem we had was the staff being exposed. We didn't have spread of the virus in the school, but staff would be exposed because one of the students had been exposed. And then you're out for three weeks, and you're you're back to teaching from home. And we just couldn't physically cover the classes anymore. Like many schools across Colorado, Boulder High is strictly virtual through the rest of 2020. It's still a question what will happen in January. Some of the district-level decisions seem a bit more removed, and it's kind of the problem you often have when the decisions are being made by people who aren't really directly affected by them. You know, I don't envy the people that have to make those decisions, because I think that no matter what decision you make, you're going to have about half of the people in your county really angry with you, no matter what the decision is. That's Jesse Wilbert, a fifth grade teacher at New Emerson School in Grand Junction. I've had to be quarantined once, which, you know, suddenly you get a a letter from the health department and then you just have to leave. And then somebody else is in your classroom for two weeks. Since we started school in August, I've had my full class in the classroom 
maybe four days total. Do you stay in person, try hybrid, or go full virtual? Amy Baca-Oler, president of the Colorado Education Association, says there have been confusing metrics that have guided decision-making around the state. It's caused a lot of anxiety. The workload has been tremendous on our um, educators, and the just the emotional, the mental, and the physical um, stress and strain that, that educators have experienced this fall has been very challenging. According to a new report from the state's Department of Education and the Colorado Education Initiative, 90% of districts polled say teacher mental health is a top priority. Rob Wright is a gym teacher at Bergen Meadow and Bergen Valley Schools in Evergreen. She can just uh, uh, air hug a teacher. That would be cool. Like, we're, we're not getting a lot of pats on the back. It's, it's do your job and, and get out there and keep, the, keep stuff going. In spite of everything... That's exactly what Colorado's thousands of teachers are doing. For CPR News, I'm Vignesh Ramachandran. It's been a dark year, and right now the nights are long. But as if to cheer us up, our solar system is putting on a show, filling the night skies with bright lights and shooting stars. Astronomer Doug Duncan of CU Boulder is back with us to explain. Hi, Doug. Good morning, Ryan. This celestial fireworks display starts tonight. The Geminid meteor shower is an annual event, and some stargazers say this is just like the best time of year. Tell us about the Geminids. Well, the Geminids are a great meteor shower with lots of bright meteors. I think probably a lot of our listeners are familiar with the Perseid meteors that come every August. Mm. And the Perseid meteors are little pieces from a comet. In fact, most meteor showers are. But the Geminid meteors every December are actually little pieces of an asteroid. There's, there's an asteroid called Phaethon that happens to be the son of Helios, the sun god. And the reason it's called Phaethon is, is instead of hanging out near Jupiter and Saturn like most asteroids do, Phaethon comes zooming in past the sun. And we think when it does that, every orbit, it heats up and the rocks kind of crack on it and little pieces come off. And every December, the Earth uh, sweeps through that part of space filled with the little bits of rock and we get a meteor shower. And because it appears to come from the constellation Gemini, we named it the Geminids. The Geminids. Now, you, you call these pieces little, but I imagine that's all uh, comparative. <laughs> relative? <laughs> yeah, relative. How little is little? Um, people are almost always amazed when I tell them the the typical meteor or shooting star is about a grain of rice worth worth of rock. What? You see, they're going so fast, it's kind of like re-entering on the space shuttle. These little bits of rock go from Boulder to Denver in one second. That's their speed. And so when they burn up, you get a nice meteor from a very small rock. Wait, so when I'm wishing on a falling star, a shooting star, I'm wishing on the, something the size of a grain of rice? You are indeed. Um, if you're lucky oh. enough to get one the size of a marble, it'll make a beautiful bright streak across the sky. I gather that um, means that n none of these are large enough to survive the atmosphere and hit Earth in any significant way. Is that true? That's right. Most um, scientists would say a meteorite rock has to be maybe basketball-sized for pieces of it to, to hit the ground. 
and, and of course, the bigger ones are more rare, right? Yeah. Um, nobody should live in fear of something that like wiped out the dinosaurs because ones that big are only meh, every hundred million years. We'd probably detect those coming in advance too, right? Um, we're pretty good. We have a couple of telescopes and a satellite devoted to tracking the asteroids and protecting the planet. That's exactly right. Okay, back to this much safer, much more beautiful phenomenon. So how and when can we see you know, these shooting stars tonight? Well, the darker the sky, the better the view. And you can really see a much, much uh, more beautiful show when the sky is nice, dark black. It's nice that we're near New Moon. And so uh, mm. if you get away from the city lights, you're going to see a lot of these. Uh, if you're stuck in the suburbs, I don't know, you might see six or, or so per hour. And um, if you're where it's dark, you'd see 60 per hour. Wow. Yeah. So in this case, city light pollution is not on our side. Yes. In fact, last night um, I went out uh, maybe four miles up into the foothills of the Rockies, and it was pretty nice and dark. And in the first 30 minutes, saw 30 shooting stars. So about one per minute where the sky is pretty dark. Well, around what time? Uh, I wonder what time oh, you were out last night. that's a really good and, point, and Ryan. Yeah. Um, it's always true with meteor showers that you see about twice as many after midnight as you see before. The reason for that is really pretty interesting. If you kind of use your powers of visualization, um, the Earth is moving around the sun, and at the same time it's spinning on its axis. And mm -hmm. so when it's midnight, we're on the part of the Earth that's facing directly away from the sun. And as the Earth continues to turn in the morning hours past midnight, 2, 3 a.m., we're on the part of the Earth that's facing forward in our orbit around the sun. And everybody knows more bugs hit the front windshield of a car because <laughs> that's the way you're moving. And it's the same way with the Earth. More meteors hit the front of the Earth than the back. And so you'd see about twice as many um, after midnight. It's a little cold then. And all meteor watchers should really bundle up, but it's it's a very good show. Wait, were you out until like 1, 2 a.m. yesterday or this no, morning? No, I have to confess, Ryan. <laughs> I only looked before midnight and I saw about one per minute. And did you do so with your naked eye or did you have... You oh, know, absolutely. Uh -huh. um, because they streak anywhere across the sky... Um, a telescope wouldn't help and binoculars wouldn't help. Um, if you're out with friends, then you have the big debate. Do you all look the same way or do you look opposite so that you see more? Um, there were about 30 people out where I was last night. And every time a big meteor went across the sky, there was a chorus of, ooh. And if you were looking the wrong way, you could spin around and you could see it. And that's up to the viewers how they want to watch the meteors. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are checking in with Doug Duncan, astronomer at CU Boulder, talking about uh, the spectacle that Mother Nature is putting on these days. And another holiday light show from the solar system is called The Great Conjunction. Saturn and Jupiter are slowly getting closer in the night sky. Explain why that happens. Well, it's kind of an optical effect 
Um, all of the planets orbit the sun in pretty much the same plane. So imagine sitting at a table and you could draw circles and those are the orbits of the planets. Yeah. And the ones closer to the sun go faster. So of course we're on the earth, further out from the sun is Jupiter and further out still is Saturn. From our point of view, about every 20 years, Jupiter laps Saturn as they're both going around the sun. And because of that, Jupiter is passing by the same direction pretty much in the sky as Saturn. And so they look really, really close together. And that's happening right now, every single night. I um, think you know this conjunction oh, ahead, of please. yeah, this conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn happens about every 20 years, but this is the closest they've been since the 1600s no that's from our perspective here on earth to be to be clear yes they are so so close together that they're if you uh, think of the size of the moon they're going to be within one fifth of the diameter of the moon and i've been watching them pretty much every clear night you know jupiter and saturn move slowly in the sky and so listeners can go out any night that it's clear and you can, you can see them. Every couple of days, they're closer and closer and closer. And on December 21st, that night, they're going to be almost merged in the sky, which is very beautiful. Yeah, what does that look like? You know, um, first of all, uh, Saturn and Jupiter are kind of low in the sky. And so you need to go out uh, right when it gets dark. I've been looking about 5 o'clock. And they are in the southwest a couple of fists held at arm's length above the horizon. So you want a, a pretty clear southwest horizon. And then there are these two bright, bright things in the sky, like very bright stars. The brighter one is Jupiter, and the slightly fainter one is Saturn. Hmm. And night after night, they're getting closer and closer. If you have any trouble finding them on December 17th, the moon is going to be pretty close to them. It'll oh, will be wow. just a little to the right and below the moon. And boy, that'll be a beautiful, beautiful night. So maybe December 17th is the most beautiful, and December 21st is the closest as these two, two beautiful planets approach each other that night. Why is Jupiter brighter? Just help us understand that. Um, bigger and closer. Yeah. Mostly it's it's closer. Uh, I also note, December 21st, that's the winter solstice, too. Um, it is. That's huh. the shortest night of the year. But it's just kind of a coincidence that Jupiter and Saturn are passing each other um, on the same night as the, as the solstice. So just to reemphasize for all our listeners, the show is going on every single night as Jupiter and Saturn creep closer and especially on the beautiful nights of uh, December 17th, and be out there and, and take a look. Doug, I want to acknowledge that this may get outside your area of expertise, but some historians have a theory that the Christmas star in the biblical story could have been a conjunction, uh, possibly at that point, of Jupiter and Venus. That's true. Um, I have heard that mentioned um, many times during my life. It's pretty tough to know because we don't have too much information from 2,000 years ago. Um, a lot of historians think that uh, the wise men were actually astrologers. 
And um, some of their wisdom came from, from looking at the sky and always looking for signs in the sky of something important happening here on the earth. And of course, 2000 years ago, astrology was pretty popular, still pretty popular today. Mm. Um, and so that's, that's one theory of what might have been the Christmas star. I'm, I'm afraid we'll never really know for sure. I'm sure there are others who think of that as sacrilege, though, the idea of bringing astrology into it. Perhaps. You know, um, it's it's uh, the wise men were the wise men, and whatever motivated them, um, only they will know. Uh, it is purely by coincidence, as we mentioned before the break, that this conjunction falls on the winter solstice. And speaking of the solstice, the shortest day of the year, I, I just learned that it's not the earliest sunset of the year. And now I feel like I've been lied to. <laughs> Ex explain this. <laughs> Well, it's really quite peculiar, right? Most people would assume, in fact, I used to assume before I studied this more carefully, that the shortest day ought to be the shortest, uh, ought to be the earliest sunset. Yeah. Well, it turns out that isn't true. And the reason is pretty fascinating. It has to do with how we tell time. And in the old days, telling time was pretty easy, right? You had sunrise. When the sun was highest in the sky, you had noon. And when the sun set, you had sunset. Um, but once people started to watch the sky more carefully, um, Greeks, like the famous Ptolemy, even the Babylonians before him, began to suspect that not every day was the same length. Hmm. And the reason for that is really quite fascinating. Yeah, and just, um, just a few moments. If the moments. Earth was not going around the sun, every day would be the, the same length. Um, the sun would be in a certain part of the sky at noon. And you wait for the earth to turn 24 hours and the sun's back there and it's still noon. But the earth is going around the sun. And because of that, the apparent position of the sun in the sky slowly drifts from constellation to constellation. Well, when the earth goes around the sun, um, our orbit isn't a perfect circle. Ah. It's a little bit oval. And so we speed up a little bit in some seasons and we slow down just a little bit in other seasons as we go around the sun. And so that affects the length of the day. And the day can get a little longer. And so we have to bring that into the equation uh, that, it, that it's not a perfect circle. And that that, that in essence, is our uh, influencing our, our version well, of time. Well, Doug, Doug, I'm so sorry. That, that's the time we have. Astronomer Doug Duncan of CU Boulder. I hate to cut the professor off. The Geminid meteor shower continues tonight. Meanwhile, Jupiter and Saturn will creep closer together until their conjunction on the solstice, December 21st. <laughs> Two astronauts from Colorado will help launch the next missions to the moon, missions that include sending the first woman to walk on the moon by 2024. Matthew Dominic from Wheat Ridge and Jessica Watkins from Lafayette are part of the newly announced Artemis team. I spoke with them in January when they graduated as NASA's newest class of astronauts. Jessica, Matthew, thanks for being with us. Thanks for Good having us. Congratulations. Uh, graduation comes after two years of astronaut boot camp. It's rigorous. And uh, from what I can tell, it includes about a thousand ways to make you throw up. What, what was the hardest day you had in basic training? Matthew, you want to start? 
I think it, I think the specifically the hardest part for me in training is uh, every time I show up to Russian and still realize how terrible I am at it, uh, despite hundreds and hundreds of hours, and I sit there across from my instructor and realize I still can't come up with the right words. You're having to learn Russian, presumably, because you could be aboard the International Space Station. Absolutely. Okay. Do you, do you want to give us a phrase that you've managed to learn? I don't know if I want to keep that. I don't know if anybody in the world wants to hear my Russian recorded. I do. I do. What does that mean? I, I speak Russian. I speak, okay. I love that you're... Jessica's, Jessica's going, you should have added Isaac. Jessica, what would that mean if he added that? Uh, it just means I speak Russian language versus speak Russian. Okay. So I love, Matthew, that you don't respond to anything about the physical challenges. It's, it's the linguistic ones. Jessica, what was most difficult for you in boot camp? Well, I certainly share Matthew's struggles in Russian as well. It certainly was learning new languages, both Russian in particular, but also just learning to speak all of the different languages that we kind of have to speak here. Um, and I'm speaking a little bit more figuratively. So learning to fly the jets. So there's kind of a pilot speak or pilot language that goes along with that. Yeah. There's spacewalking. We have a kind of language that goes along with the communications associated with with that training, um, as well as the space station kind of has its own language in terms of acronyms and the names of, of all of the systems on the International Space Station. So there's been a lot of language learning over here. Yeah. Give me an example of the language of spacewalking. Tell me a phrase that you learned and maybe interpret it for us. Putting a local down, for example, means putting the tether that is attached to you, putting the hook down on a handrail that is on the outside of the space station uh, so that you are safe. And that is different from setting up your safety tethers, which connect you back to the airlock as kind of a last resort safety configuration as well. Now, if you misconjugate a verb in Russian, I'm assuming they conjugate verbs. I don't know Russian well enough. Uh, no, no one will die. But boy, you get that tether wrong and lives are in the balance, huh? Yes, absolutely. It's yeah. really important to be very exact and very specific um, when you are communicating both with your partner, the person that you are doing the space walk with, as well as communicating back to Houston, back to mission control. We all need to be able to you know, have the same words and speak the same language so that we are able to be safe and, and accomplish the mission. All right. Your backgrounds are fascinating. Matthew, you have a, I don't know, sort of a classic resume for an astronaut, a naval officer and test pilot. I think of the author Tom Wolfe. He described the Apollo astronauts as having the right stuff, you know, a combination of smarts and risk taking. Is that still true or do you think the right stuff is different now? I think, uh, oh man, that's, that's a little bit of a loaded question there, but uh, I think uh, the right stuff is all about being a team member and, uh, and, and working hard with, with a group of people that are dedicated to the mission. And it's, it's, it's obviously really cool from a test pilot perspective right now that we have three new spacecraft coming into play and we get to test those and figure those out and shake those down and, and find all the things that might go wrong with them and, and make sure they're working safe. Um, but the right stuff is about, is about being a team player and being a team member 
um, that can contribute to spaceflight and work together to solve problems. We all have different talents in different areas, and that's one of the best parts about being in the office is, is walking around. That you can find an answer to anything in the office, right? Wikipedia is only so deep, but our <laughs> office has got such a, such a breadth of background, I can find the answer to anything. Uh, you mentioned the new spacecraft. This is another Colorado connection because uh, American astronauts are presumably going back to the moon under the Artemis program, and they will fly in the Orion space capsule designed here in Colorado by Lockheed Martin. Uh, Jessica, you're a Stanford grad. You worked on the Mars rover, and you have a PhD in geology. As a geologist, what most fascinates you about space, about the potential for the materials we could get in space? Yeah, absolutely. The detail, scientific detail that we would be able to get going back to the moon, getting new samples, um, exploring new areas, particularly the South Pole, and finding uh, resources there is really exciting, both from a scientific and an economic standpoint. So we really look forward to those opportunities. Okay, so the, the moon, right, is the first idea as a kind of jumping off point eventually to get to Mars. Matthew, Jessica, are, are you guaranteed to go to the moon or is that like another winnowing down? Let me just say that your class of 13 came from a pool of 18,000 applicants. But Matthew, are you guaranteed to, to, to go to the moon or to go to the International Space Station? What happens next? Well, I mean, I don't think there's ever any any guarantees in life. Uh, we're happy to support. Jessica and I are both happy to support uh, any mission put in front of us. Uh, we've completed the you know the two years of training here that that gets us the foundation from which to build for any mission we could come to. And and both of us would be happy to go to the International Space Station. Happy to go uh, set up the infrastructure for Artemis that allows us to go to the moon to stay. Uh, all of those are open and eligible for us. I you know I know that Jessica. We talked a little bit about some of the right stuff. Uh, Jessica brings the right stuff and that, you know, she's the geologist that helps me, the aviator, right? And uh, and she helps teach me geology. And then and then she was talking about the lingo earlier, the vernacular of the job. Um, and I get to teach her some of the, you know, the aviation aspects. And that's why it's such a good team aspect. So we're all excited for any mission we could put in front of us. Oh, you're so uh, magnanimous in that answer, Matthew. But you also must have deep desires. What What is your dream? I mean, come on, you, you walk outside and look up at the moon, uh, anybody, and, and, and you just can't tell me that you just want to go walk all over that thing. It's incredible. <laughs> I have a telescope at home, and I, you stare into the craters and think and imagine it. And, you know, and I, yes, I'm an aviator test pilot background, and I'm going to very carefully admit that I actually enjoyed geology classes with Jessica and all the instructors as we learned about all the rocks and how the moon came to be. It's actually incredibly fascinating. Uh, it is tough to admit, and I'll take I'll get trouble for it later. Get <laughs> get some rousing from my classmates for openly admitting that as an aviator. But uh, absolutely, to answer your question, let's go oh, back sorry, to okay. the moon. Jessica, do you want to be on Mars? That you know, that's an incredible mission, right? I mean, it would take months, with seven months, I think, to a year, one way. Uh, yes, certainly. Um, as long as we have a ride back, I'm definitely. <laughs> <in>. <laughs> Okay. Do you think it's a do you think there's a good likelihood that you'd be a Martian explorer? You know, we we have a lot of opportunities ahead of us and I think, you know, focusing on the moon for now is is a big challenge on its own and I'm excited about that opportunity and then what that opportunity might lead to. And as we look forward to 
Mars, you know, I think building the technologies and the infrastructure and getting, you know, into back into that mode of exploration in terms of exploring outside of Earth's orbit will get us where we need to go on the trajectory towards Mars. And I would love to be a part of that, however I can contribute. Yeah, I mean, it occurs to me that, that one reality of going to Mars is that you have to be able to make your own fuel to get there. Like, you can't just launch from Earth with all the fuel you'd need for Mars. It would just be too heavy. I have to think that a geologist would play a rather important role in that kind of space mining that propels you that far. Is is it, Do I have that right? Yeah, absolutely. And actually, one of the instruments on the Mars 2020 rover will actually have an instrument that is going to start looking at the possibility of creating fuel from the resources that are available on the Martian surface. So that uh, rover will kind of help lead the way as we start to think about human exploration of Mars. Um, And it's certainly exciting to see uh, what those results will be. Jessica, you're one of six women in this class. Uh, You're also African-American. I wonder if you'd share a few thoughts on how NASA is handling diversity in the astronaut corps. Yeah, I think... You know, NASA has really put a priority on diversity, and I think for good reason. I think that uh, NASA has shown that it believes that it is important to have a diversity of backgrounds and experiences and that all kinds of skill sets really are necessary to accomplish the hard things that we've set out for ourselves. So, yeah, I'm really excited to be a part of this group and, you know, be a, be a part, one puzzle piece in a, in a much bigger puzzle. And I do hope that all young girls, and especially young girls of color that are interested in STEM and interested in exploring space, feel empowered to do so. I know for me, uh, growing up, having role models, and particularly ones that looked like me, was important in, in making me believe in myself and feel like those kinds of dreams were possible. And I, I just hope that young girls across the country uh, feel that way now. Who is your hero? I, growing up and and now still, um, certainly looked up to Sally Ride and Mae Jemison as as women who were able to break barriers and follow their dreams, accomplish the impossible. Um, Tell me this, Matthew, as you were growing up in Wheat Ridge, who was your hero? I remember growing up and seeing launches, and I remember sitting sitting on the couch and watching on the old CRT, watching space shuttle launches, and just anybody to me that was flying the space shuttle was a hero, right? The fact that you could pilot something at such high velocities through the atmosphere, they were all heroes to me. Did you say CRT? Yeah, cathode ray tube. You're talking You're talking um, about the kind of old school television you were watching these launches on. That's what that's a reference to? Oh, uh, yes, sir. Uh, <laughs> Matthew, are you a role model? I hope so. I think that's one of my toughest jobs. I have two daughters, and uh, I try every day to be a good role model for them. I imagine you guys are doing a lot of interviews these days. What is a question you have not been asked? What is something you are eager to say and perhaps feel you haven't been able to? Jessica? Um, That is a good question. I think uh, one question that I think is important is kind of why is spaceflight, human spaceflight, important in general, you know, why do we do this? Um, yeah, and there's always that question to... of like, you know, there's so many other things we could spend money on. There are problems right. here on Earth, you know, that kind of thing. Right, absolutely. And I think the answer to that is that human spaceflight really brings us together as a a whole world, you know, as, as a human race. I think it's something that pushes the bounds of what we're capable of uh, as humans, and it 
it's kind of at that edge of human capability that we are able to come together and really achieve really cool things. Matthew, uh, is there something you haven't been asked that you'd like to share? Uh, I think I'd just like to convey just the reality of it. And when I was 10, we were going to go to the moon in 10 years. When I was 20, we were going to go to the moon in 10 years. And when I was 36 and I joined NASA in 2017, we were going to go to the moon in 10 years. The goal was 2028. And and that is how it felt when I got here, is that we're always going to go to the moon 10 years from now. But since I've been here, about a year ago, we, we I can't remember exactly, but we started. We announced that we're going to do Artemis. And at first it felt like the announcement. It felt like the same thing. But now, like just having the pulse, the pulse of people here at Johnson Space Center, all the other NASA centers around the country, as we've gone from center to center, you can see a shift. Like we're going. We're going. These are the things we've dreamed of, and we're going back to the moon to set up the stepping stone. And I think it's really exciting for young kids because – you know, I, I felt like I had missed the moon, right? And then the shuttle went away, and I felt like I'd missed the shuttle. You know, like as an aviator and a test pilot, the shuttle was the pinnacle, and I thought I had missed it. And I think this is really exciting for young kids because we're not just going to the moon to go and come back. We're going to stay. And you can feel the pulse and the energy at all the NASA centers that we're going to stay. And so kids in school now can realize that they're not going to miss it, that if they work hard in school – they'll have a chance to be a part of it and join us on the moon because we're building the infrastructure to go and to stay. They'll be watching on flat screens. Matthew. Yes, flat screens, LCDs. Plasmas are days of yore. <laughs> Thanks to both of you for being with us. Thank, Thank you, you so much for your time. Matthew Dominic and Jessica Watkins are two of NASA's newest astronauts. They're both from Colorado. We spoke in January, and they've just been named members of the Artemis team, which will send the first woman and the next man to the moon by 2024. Still to come, masks that carry meaning. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Every street has stories, and every year, Denverite tells a few during our street week. Hi, I'm Anna Campbell, editor of Denverite, and this week we're pounding the pavement of Denver's Bruce Randolph Avenue. Look for profiles of folks we meet there, some standout restaurants in the neighborhood, and a dive into the life of the man who gave Bruce Randolph Avenue its name and its heart. Check out Street Week and sign up for our daily newsletter at denverite.com. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Masks are a way to protect one another. They're also a way to express yourself, particularly if you're a crafter who can make your own. As CPR arts reporter Monica Castillo tells us, each mask has a story behind it. Aurora resident Jennifer Bello is using a sewing machine now, but she learned to cross-stitch when her then-fiancé went to boot camp. Since then, she's turned her crafting skills into a business, building an Etsy store that sells handmade items and commissioned works. She probably didn't know that the skills she used to pass the time would become so vital to her family in the early days of the pandemic. My oldest daughter has cancer, so I needed to make sure that she was protected as well. And trying to find masks purchase at that point in time was almost impossible. So I just kind of did a little research online and found an amazing website that had a pattern. So I thought, well, let me try this. Bella's masks tend to be bright and full of pop culture characters. Right now, there's masks featuring Baby Yoda, Doctor Who, the Wicked Witch from Wizard of Oz, and for the holidays, you can even snag a Grinch or a Frosty the Snowman pattern while supplies last. 
She says running her Etsy shop has become her full-time job after working as a stay-at-home mom. Bella's story resembles those of many other crafters across the state. They saw a need for masks in their family or communities, and many taught themselves how to make a mask out of necessity, something many of them had never done before. Chris Jundeff in Inglewood found himself in a similar situation when his mother caught the coronavirus in mid-March. Even his father, a doctor, was running out of mask at his practice. You know, I was like, honestly, my mom has a sewing machine. Maybe I could, you know, find some fabric in the basement and maybe make something. And so it started as I made a couple of these Denver Bronco masks and suggest, you know, my, my dad uh, wore one to work and some people were interested in buying it. That interest led Jundev to open his own Etsy shop at the start of the pandemic. It turned into an unexpected job for him. Yeah, it was definitely not the job I thought I was going to have after business school. So I kind of got into action and realized that, you know, even during this pandemic and during, you know, rough times for me, you know, on my family side, but also financially and in my just not having, you know, any job to look forward to that, you know, there are, there are opportunities out there if you can kind of think creatively and, and, and discover them. Like June Depp, Julie Whitney, a crafter in Fort Collins, says she took up sewing just to make masks. When this pandemic hit, Etsy started sending out these emails saying, if you, like we are, the country is in dire need for masks. Like if you can make masks, then, you know, please do it. And, and so when I was getting these emails, I thought, okay, well, I, I'm a crafty person. Like I can learn how to sew. Another experienced Etsy vendor, Meredith Macri in Aurora, says she wasn't originally making masks but switched over when the need for more became apparent. And then my neighbor, who is a head nurse at a freestanding ER, called me and she said, are you making masks? And she was in a total panic. And I said, no. And then she said, we have one day left of PPE. And I was so upset for all these nurses who are working such long hours in such stressful circumstances to not have protective equipment. So that night I said, I'm going to learn how to make masks. Through trial and error, these first-time mask makers eventually found the patterns that worked and an eager audience. It was a gold rush on masks, but instead of profits, many makers just wanted to help people. To keep up with the new demand, many crafters kept intense hours like Whitney. I worked from like, and I'm not exaggerating, from like 5 a.m. to 9 p.m. every day for like two months. And it was actually kind of funny because my husband, his job at the time, he wasn't able to go out. So he was running to the post office for me like three times a day. Bello also struggled. And to be honest, I could not keep up with the demand. The The orders just kept coming in faster and faster than, than I could sew. In those first couple weeks, I would say I was probably up until maybe two in the morning cutting patterns and pinning everything together. And then the next day I would just sew until you know, my fingers hurt. Some mask makers like Patty Krasanowski, a crafter in Colorado Springs, took the challenge head on. The bane of quilters is that we, we have the tendency to hoard fabric. Some of the fabrics mask makers use reflect the spirit of Colorado. Some feature nature or hiking. Others make masks to pay homage to sports teams like the Broncos or Nuggets. There's paw prints for pet lovers and various versions of our state flag. The masks Coloradans wear are as diverse as the residents of the state itself. There are masks for every imaginable hobby. Masks that tie on differently for people with disabilities. Masks for the deaf or hard of hearing. 
They come in every imaginable color and shape to fit a variety of bodies. Krasinowski looked for what Colorado still had to offer in the depths of the pandemic for inspiration. Even when we were on lockdown, we were still able to go hiking and things like that. And then I just think Coloradans are proud of where they live. Macri believes that making unique masks could encourage people to wear them. And it was nice to be able to help out in this area because masks help a lot. And I feel like if we can make them at least an interesting, fun pattern, make them attractive, you know, that, that might provide a little bit more incentive for people to wear them. Since March, each mask maker has survived the ebb and flow of demand as well as supply shortages. To now, each has sold thousands of masks. That's a lot of fabric. And a lot of time. Many say the unexpected workload has helped them through the pandemic. For Whitney, mask making gives her a sense of purpose. Like before I started making the mask, like I was really depressed. For many mask makers, like Aurora resident Bello, the feeling that they are doing good for people far outweighed any profits they make. I felt really good because I was getting so many compliments on how well the mask was made and, you know, people really liked it and people would tell me it's my favorite mask to wear when I go out. I've gotten to some points where it's like, gosh, I just don't want to do this anymore. But then I would get an email or a text from someone that says, gosh, I really loved what you made. And I, you know, I love your patterns and I love your designs. And that's what keeps me going. Bella says she's taken some of her profits and donated them to the Morgan Adams Foundation to support pediatric cancer research. She'll also help pay for her daughter's cancer medication. And she might just buy her family a dinner or two. I'm Monica Castillo, CPR News. And I'm Ryan Warner wearing a black and gray plaid mask today made by a single parent in my neighborhood who makes masks on the side. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.